Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. As you're turning there, let me introduce myself. My name is Russell Boone. I'm the pastor to students, kids, and families here at Redemption Church, and it's something that I love doing. So for a moment, let me just talk to those of you who are in fifth grade and under. If you are in fifth grade and under, would you just stand up right where you are? Just stand up right where you are, fifth grade and under. Even if you're at the very back, uh, stand up right where you are. I want to talk to you for just a, just a moment. First, let me say, I am so glad that you're here. This is what we call family worship. You might be familiar with that term, that phrase. This is whenever you join your parents in worship uh, on Sunday mornings. And here's what I want you to know. Today, we're gonna be talking about the armor of God. And so I'm really glad that you're here. So as we start to talk about the armor of God, what I wanna encourage you to do, student or children, is to imagine, use your imagination. Imagine what the armor of God would look like. And when we jump into the armor of God, I would even encourage you to write where you are, if you have a piece of paper and a crayon or a pencil, to just kind of draw what the armor of God might look like, what you think the armor of God might look like. Um, So we're glad that you're here. We're going to spend about the next 25 to 30 minutes talking about the Bible. Stay standing. I'm still talking to you. Stay standing. I believe in you. You can do that. We're going to spend the next 25 to 30 minutes talking about the Bible. Did you hear that, Jeff? 25 to 30 minutes. All right? All right, so just the next 25, 30 minutes. I think you can stay with us. I think you can hang with us, okay? But um, if you can't, parents, it is okay for your child to get a little squirmy, all right? And if they need to head back, we have paper in the back. You can take them back there. We have some crayons back there, and they can even draw or color or whatever they need to do in order for them to be a little bit more engaged. All right, children, so glad you stood up. Glad you're here. We're thankful that you're here. You can be seated. Great job, great job. So, like Jeff mentioned, this is the beginning of kind of a mini-series called You Can Understand the Bible. And whether you're churched or unchurched or educated or uneducated, approaching the scriptures, yes, that's my theme song. Mm -hmm, Do you feel that? Yeah, that's what what happens when I start preaching. Uh, Just kidding, that's not true. Uh, Thanks, Nathan. Um, uh, Just a little background music, you know, just revving. Anyways, um... So whether you're church or unchurched or educated or uneducated, approaching the scriptures can be very daunting. It can feel very intimidating. I understand that. And that's okay. And so what we hope to do with, uh, with this series is to give you some frameworks, as Jeff said, some frameworks to approach and to read the Bible. Here's the other thing. Even if you consider yourself maybe an armchair theologian, maybe you know the ins and outs of eschatology and soteriology, maybe you can... Um, uh, describe and explain the nuances of those theological categories, it can be easy to miss the purpose of the Bible, to get so caught up in the knowledge of the scriptures that you actually miss the purpose. Our culture does the same thing. From rock music to pop culture to, um, to novels, the scriptures are quoted almost anywhere throughout our scriptures, within, within every spectrum of our culture, you could probably find the scriptures quoted in one way or the other. 
But the question is, what is the purpose of the scriptures? Whether you're familiar with the scriptures or you're not, it can be easy to lose sight of the primary focus of the scriptures. And what I think we often do is when we approach the scriptures, we have a tendency to approach the scriptures asking the question, what can I get out of this? What is in this for me? And even how can I apply this to my life? And I want to lay before you that that is the wrong question to be asking. Here's what I want to lay before you, that when we approach the scriptures asking, what can I get out of this? What is in this for me? We are functionally inserting ourselves into the scriptures, making the scriptures about us. Instead of asking that question, I want to lay before you that when we approach the scriptures, our primary question, the primary question we should open up, uh, open up with is, what does this say about Jesus? What does this passage say about the character of God? My friend Caleb Harper says to read the scriptures is an encounter with Christ. So in short, a very simple way of explaining or saying this is that I want to lay before you on how to read the Bible in a Christ-centered way, that Jesus is the point of every passage, that Jesus is the interpret, interpretation, the interpretive key. That Jesus is the interpretive key. And so as we open up our scriptures today in Ephesians 6, we're going to look at the armor of God. My hope for you, this is a very familiar passage for many of you. And if it's not a familiar passage for you, that is okay. You actually might be at an advantage. But my hope for you is we open up a familiar passage of scripture, one that we often want to quickly apply to our lives, to go and do. I want to encourage you that before you go and do, that you would pause and worship, that you would pause and that you would see Jesus with greater clarity, that you would believe in Jesus more, and that you would worship Jesus. And in doing so, that you would, been, that you would then be inspired to go live in faithful obedience to Jesus. So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 6. If you're not familiar with your Bible or if you don't have a Bible, the passages will be up on the screen. We also have copies of Scripture, the gray Bibles that are in the back. Um, if you're reading from one of those, it's on page 839. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. We're going to read the whole passage that will be in verses 10 through 20. It says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and making supplication for the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In this section, uh, this section is a part of Paul's conclusion. And as he's ending the letter to the Ephesians, by, he, is ending, excuse me, he is ending the letter in Ephesians by highlighting what Jesus has done for those who trust him, then how, how we are to live in response to those spiritual realities. So in other words, Paul is directing our attention back to Jesus as he's given us very practical application uh, for the Christian life. So as you may know, the book of Ephesians is broken up into six chapters. Scholars and theologians tend to break up uh, the book of Ephesians into two halves as well. The first half, chapters one through three, is very, it's, it's robust with theolo- theology and doctrine. And in chapters one through three, Paul begins with God, highlighting who God is, highlighting his character, directing our attention to God. And he also lays a very strong foundation for the nature of man, that we might have a good understanding about our nature and who we are. And then in uh, chapters four through six, Paul, in response to who God is, then gives some very practical application. So for you armchair theologians, chapters one through three might be categorized more orthodoxy, having a right view of God. And then chapters four through six might be more orthopraxy, having a right practice of the Christian life. What I want to highlight here is that even Paul, whenever he is writing to the Ephesian church, he begins with God. He begins with the glory of God, not with application, not with practice, not with you know, you know, six steps to your best life now, nothing like that. He actually begins with God. And it's so important to him that half the book is wrapped up in directing their attention to God. Here's what I want you to see, that application is never void of glorification of Jesus. That the application of our faith is never void of of the glorification of Jesus. That before we try to apply and go and do, we need to pause and worship and turn our attention to Jesus. In fact, it's been said that if your reading has not illuminated Jesus, then you're not finished reading. Or if your study of the scriptures has not caused you to worship, then you're not finished studying. Do not approach the scriptures merely by trying to seek application, but approach the scriptures like Paul even does in his writings to the Ephesians and turning your attention to God. So let's look at verses 10 through 11. If you're following along, if you're taking notes, our first point is spiritual strength is found in the Lord. Verse 10, it says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Be strong in the Lord. This is Paul's thesis statement. He's telling you what to do and how to do it. And his word choice is very specific. Be strong in the Lord and in his might. 
What he does not say is be strong for the Lord. Our tendency is to want to be strong for the Lord. Why do we want to be strong for the Lord? Because so often in our unbelief of God, in our disbelief, we want to prove that we are worthy, that we are able, that we are capable, that we are valuable. So we try to be strong for the Lord without leaning on God whatsoever. But what Paul is saying is don't be strong for the Lord. You have nothing to prove. In fact, it is because of your weakness that you are able to be strong in the Lord because through Jesus, he came and saved you, bringing, him in, bringing you into his family. So be strong in the Lord. Our temptation is to use scripture memorization, to, read the, uh, to, to, to use the reading of our Bible to prove that we are spiritual enough that we deserve to be on God's team or that God would accept us or that God will look down upon us and view us because of our works, because of how spiritual we might be based on our doings, our attendance in church, our service in the church, or our reading of scripture, or our memorization of scripture, that we might prove ourselves worthy before the Lord. But this is all works-based righteousness and it is anti-gospel. We have a tendency to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, by our own strength. We have a tendency to believe that cleanliness is next to godliness. We have a tendency to, 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 to wear our Sunday best, to dress our best for the Lord. This are, these are things that I heard growing up. These are, these are the, the things that, that we have a tendency to fall into, and none of it is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you are valuable and you are able not because of what you can do, not because of who you are, but you are able because of what Jesus has done for you. And that is the truth that you need to, you need to repeat to yourself, that you need to remind yourself of daily. You are not strong in your own ability, but your strength comes from the Lord. You are valuable because you are his and you are able because of the strength of Jesus. So don't be strong for the Lord as if you have something to prove or as if you're trying to impress the Lord. Be strong in the Lord as he is your strength because through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has given you his spirit. But why? But why be strong in the Lord? So let's move on to verse 12. It says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul encourages the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord because the battle is not physical, but it is spiritual. The temptation we face every day is to physically prepare for a spiritual battle. So what I hope to do right now is to bring this home to you. I want to talk about how we physically prepare for a spiritual battle in our Christian circles. So often, even in our Christian life, even in our Christian circles, we try to physically prepare for the spiritual battle, and in the end, we're not prepared at all. But before I do, let's define spiritual battle. Again, running in our Christian circles, there's a lot of assumed knowledge that I don't want to assume that we have. We can throw around words like spiritual battle. I can just assume that you know what that means. So let me just give some examples of what that spiritual battle that Paul is talking about. 
When you are tempted to judge others based on their appearance, on their status, or their socioeconomic status, their wealth, that is a spiritual battle that's happening, that's waging in you. There is a value that, that is at play, that is at tension within you, that you're, you are tempted to value physical things, to value worldly things more than to value spiritual things. To look upon people based on their physical abilities, based on their physical wealth, more than look upon people with the compassionate eyes of Jesus Christ. That is part of the spiritual battle that you are engaged in right now. When you want to run to work, when you want to bury yourself in work in order to escape, from some other reality, dare I say your own family? I'm not gonna say names, I'm just saying we have a tendency to escape, to run to other things in order to flee the pain or the suffering that we might be experiencing. Maybe it's not work. Maybe you wanna, maybe you're running to shopping because you have a deep incessant need that you're trying to fulfill so you're running to materialism. Maybe, maybe it's, it's alcohol or drugs, whatever the case might be, we have a tendency to run to the physical things, to provide comfort for us, to, to, to try to pre even prepare us maybe for spiritual realities. Or maybe we run to physical things in order to escape the spiritual battle that's waging within us and it does no good. So often we want to fight the battle of temptation through physical means. And even in our Christian circles, we do the same thing. Even in our Christian circles, we have a tendency to do the same thing. I wanna offer two ways that we do that. Oftentimes, we have a tendency to be the functional saviors for other people, or we have a tendency to look to other people to be our functional savior. Um, I've even given this really bad advice in my early years is, is as I'd be counseling with students or even with adults and as they would share with me some of their temptations, I would say, hey man, just call me. Just call me in the middle of your temptation. We'll walk through it. Now, let me say this. There is something really, really beautiful, really beautiful about the community that God has given us and friendship. But whenever we give advice, very pragmatic, very practical advice, void of Jesus, void of the Spirit of God, we then become the functional saviors of others. Or maybe some of you who are like me are hyper extroverted, so you're such a verbal processor that before running to the Lord, you're running to your spouse, you're running to your friends, you're running to someone or something else to provide the comfort, to provide the, uh, the, the protection, to provide the security that you're looking for before you run to Jesus. It's a way that we become functional saviors for one another. The gift of true friends Friendship is invaluable, but the presence of Jesus is irreplaceable. There are things that the Spirit of God can do within you that, can do, that he can do for you that your friends can't do, that your spouse can't do, that your children can't provide for you. Run first to Jesus. Be strengthened in the Lord first and foremost. The second way that we do this is that we give very pragmatic accountability practices. Uh, a couple of years ago, there's a woman in a small group and she confessed. She, she was confessing to some close friends and she said that she had a shopping addiction. 
And she would go to Neiman Marcus and Macy's and Von Mar. She would spend a lot of money. She, she even associated that with some other suffering that she was experiencing. But she identified it as a shopping addiction. Very real. It's a very beautiful thing when somebody can feel comfortable enough to confess their sin like that. But here's the thing. There was somebody else in that group who their response to this woman was, so, well, maybe you don't just need to stop shopping. Maybe you should just start shopping at thrift stores or Goodwill or something like that. Here's the reality. That's a very pragmatic advice. The, 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 the truth is that you should be spending less money, probably, maybe, but it does not address the condition of her heart. That as this woman in her addiction was trying to fulfill and meet some need through her shopping addiction, just giving her advice to change her means of sin actually does nothing to address the heart. And even parents, don't assume that just because you have specific rules and boundaries and passwords on your, the electronic devices that are within your home, don't just assume that your child is not uh, exposed or even pursuing worldly things. Have conversations with them. Have conversations that direct them to Jesus, that open up their need for Jesus and then point them to Jesus. There's something really good about passwords. There's something really good about boundaries, but don't rely merely on the physical in order to engage the spiritual battle. Talk to them. Highlight their need. Highlight the sufficiency of Jesus. Setting boundaries in order to protect your heart or the hearts of your children is great wisdom, but should never be relied on to change your heart. We have a tendency to set great boundaries and give great advice, but never looking to how Jesus has already won the battle for us. It is not your ability. It is not your infinite or finite wisdom that's gonna deliver somebody from their need. And it's not your ability or your wisdom that's gonna prepare you for the spiritual battle. It is the outstretched arms of Jesus that prepares us for the battle. It is the cross of Christ that crushes the enemy. So don't look to others to be your functional savior. Don't try to be the functional savior for others, but point them to the King of Kings and the one who is able and willing, he is good and he is great, to meet, them where he, to meet them where they are, to meet us where we are, to strengthen us exactly how we need to be strengthened. So we must spiritually prepare, but how? How do we spiritually prepare? Our second point is spiritual preparation for spiritual battle. Verses 13 through 18 says this, and kids, if you're with us, now would be a good time to engage your imaginations and to imagine what the armor of God might look like. Verses or parents, if you want to color too, you can do that too. That'd be great. Verses 13 through 18 says this, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So, 
before we go forward, I want to give you a little historical context. Paul is writing this letter in a Roman prison. He's likely chained to a Roman soldier or very close to a Roman soldier. What's fascinating is that he's in this really dark place, even seemingly hopeless, but he's speaking about the Ephesian church and he's encouraging them in the Lord. As I imagine, Paul is a very smart guy. He is a very smart guy. It's not just my imagination. But as I'm imagining him sitting, sitting there, I imagine him reflecting upon the gospel. He's reflecting on the Old Testament, Isaiah and Psalms. And as he's thinking about how the gospel protects him, how the gospel defends him, how the gospel, how God through Jesus fights for him, he looks up and his eyes lock on to this Roman soldier. As he's thinking about these nuances of the gospel, he's, he begins to apply them to this Roman soldier. So it's important for you to know what a Roman soldier looks like. As you may know, um, a Roman soldier wears the, a belt. The belt was kind of the centerpiece of the armor of a soldier. It's what held everything together. The breastplate would be attached to the belt. The sword would be attached to the belt. His tunic would be attached to the belt. You uncinch the belt, everything falls apart, falls off the Roman soldier. So it served as a very important part and piece of the armor of a soldier. Then he has the breastplate. The breastplate clearly, obviously, functions as a protection of the core, the torso, protecting the, uh, the vital organs of the soldier. And then the shoes, uh, the shoes kind of served more as like shin guards from the knee down, provided a firm, stable foundation for the soldier to, to defend or to attack his enemy. And the helmet obviously protected his head. But here's what's interesting about the helmet is that it protected one of the most vulnerable parts of the soldier. And in doing so, it gave the soldier the confidence he needed to engage in battle and to fight without having to defend his head because it's already protected by the helmet. In high school, I was a baseball player. I was a six foot, 240 pound catcher. You don't see many of those guys because we're just skinny, lanky. There's not a lot of us to, 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 to uh, block the ball. But the reason I loved catching is because I got to wear a helmet. I was a terrible infielder. And I kind of think guys who play third base and shortstop are not really smart or they're just really ugly because they got hit in the face so many times. Their mug is so jacked up that they can't get a girlfriend if their life depended on it. So I wanted to be a catcher because I got to wear all the protection. I got to wear the shin guards. I got to wear the chest protector. But most of all, I wore the helmet. As an infielder, I could not attack the ball. If the ball was hit to me, I was too afraid to feel the ball because I was too busy protecting my mug uh, as my moneymaker, as I like to call it. I didn't, I'm not blessed with many things. I'm not, I'm not that smart. I'm not even that athletic. But man, my moneymaker is what got me my wife. You know what I'm talking about? So you're laughing. I don't understand why you're laughing. I'm offended by all of you right now. Um, but I got to wear a mask. And in wearing my mask, I was not afraid of the ball because my face was protected. Then whenever the ball went into the dirt, I felt the freedom and the confidence to go after it and to block it. I was not worried. And in the same way, the helmet protected the face of the soldier, giving him the confidence to engage in battle. And finally, the sword. As you know, the sword is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. So with the sword, the soldier could attack the enemy. And with the sword, the soldier could also defend himself. 
So Paul is sitting in jail and he's using what he is physically seeing to illustrate a spiritual reality for the Ephesians and for us too. But more specifically, Paul is not only illustrating some spiritual kind of ethereal, far off realities, but Paul is directing us to look to Jesus as the one who protects us, defends us, and fights for us. The full armor of God is found in Jesus. God fights for us and defends us through Jesus. Amen? God fights for you. God defends you. God protects you through Jesus. Let that sink in. Not because of who you are, not because of what you can do, not because of your ability, but because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is the belt of truth. God holds everything together in Jesus. Jesus is the word of God and the word of God is truth. Without first cinching ourselves to Jesus, everything else falls apart. When we try to go and do or just run into application from the Bible, we're actually missing the very heart of scripture. That when we approach the Bible, we need to approach the Bible asking, how is this passage cinching me to Jesus? For those of you who love apologetics, you do not need to prove an old earth or new earth theory. You do not need to understand the apocalypse and how the earth is going to end. Those things don't matter. You don't need to defend those things or prove those things. You just need to apologize, Jesus. You just need to prove Jesus. Don't point your skeptics to the end times or to the creation. Point your skeptics to Jesus. Disprove Jesus. Everything we're about falls apart. But prove Jesus, and it brings everything together. Jesus is the breastplate of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus is our righteousness. He who knew no righteousness, or excuse me, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be righteous. Amen? Like, your right standing before God relies on Jesus, not on you. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't doesn't matter. It's all dependent upon Jesus. You cannot make yourself right before the Lord. So what what does it mean to put on the righteousness of Jesus? What does that mean? That's a weird term. What does it mean to put on the righteousness of Jesus? Putting on the righteousness of Jesus means being convinced of your identity in Christ. Whenever you are not convinced of your identity in Christ, you begin to believe that you are unrighteous before God and that you have to earn God's favor. But in Christ, God God has shown you favor. In Christ, you have become righteous before the King of Kings. So whenever you are tempted to believe that you are too far gone from God's grace, God has already given you all his grace through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. When you are being tempted to believe that you are unlovable, the outstretched arms of Jesus proves that he loves you. When you feel far off from God, God has called you his son or his daughter because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, the Spirit of God is with you. 
Jesus is our peace. He's the, sh- the, uh, the shoes of peace for us. Without Christ, we have no peace with God. The scriptures say that without Christ, we are warring against God. We are enemies of God. So first and foremost, because of Jesus, we have peace with God. But because of Jesus, we can have peace in a chaotic world filled with sin and suffering. And some of you guys need to rest in that this morning. It feels like the world is crumbling around you. There is sin and suffering around you. And you don't know what to do. And it doesn't feel very peaceful. But let Jesus be your peace. How? By knowing that Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows and he is very present with you. He is more present than a brother. Why is that important? Okay, so you got a comrade in the battle. That's good. But here's the thing. Through Christ, the Spirit of God is with us. Because Christ knows where you're at, how you're feeling, what you're going through. He can give you exactly what you need in that moment. He can give you the the, the power, the strength, and the grace to walk faithful and faithful obedience through your suffering. He knows exactly how to comfort you. He knows exactly the kind of peace that you so desperately need. Jesus is our shield of faith. Faith or belief that Jesus is better is what the scriptures is talking about. That in the face of every temptation, the goodness and the greatness of God is being questioned. Whenever you find yourself in the midst of temptation and you're having to choose between being faithful to Jesus or stepping into sin, the goodness and great, great, the goodness and the greatness of Jesus is being questioned. Sin, the enemy, is telling you a lie. That you step into this sin, it's going to fulfill you. You step into this sin, it's going to satisfy you. If you step into this sin, you're going to find, you're going to arrive. And you know, you know, because you have chosen the way of sin time and time again, you know on the other side of that, it's, fal- it's a false promise every time. Am I right? It's okay. We make an authentic disciples. You can be honest. You know that that is a false promise. But, and you know this too, whenever you choose Jesus in the midst of that temptation, whenever you believe, whenever you put faith in Jesus that he is better than that sin, On the other side of it, he proves himself faithful. Jesus is our shield of faith. Believing that Jesus is better protects us from the darts of the enemy. But the temptation is to put our faith in something else. We are tempted to put our faith in science to prove the existence of God. We are tempted to put our faith in medicine for healing. We are tempted to put our faith in friends and family for security and acceptance, all of which, to some degree, and at one point or another, is going to fail us. All of which will not extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. Only belief in Jesus will strengthen your faith and protect you from temptation. Jesus is the helmet of salvation. He is our confidence. The confidence of salvation is what gives us the confidence to engage in the battle. And some of you have relied on your church attendance. Some of you have even relied on your scripture memorization. Some of you have relied on your biblical knowledge for your salvation to prove your worth and your value. Some of you have ran to so many other things that the world has to offer for salvation for comfort and for hope. And all of those things 
either have come up short or I promise you they will come up short. They are not able to provide the salvation that you so desperately need. All the other pieces of the armor of God are, do, do not matter. Do not matter without the helmet of salvation. And today, this morning, some of you need to receive the forgiveness of sins and receive the forgiveness or receive the salvation from God. The forgiveness of sin is your salvation and it is your confidence. Let me explain this just a little bit more. And whenever you are forgiven of your sins, your past sins are forgiven. Your present sins are forgiven. Some of you are struggling to believe this because you're in sin right now and it's on the front of your mind. Your present sin is forgiven. But here's what's mind-blowing. That when God saved you, he knew all of your future sins and yet he still chose to save you. I know, I know your mind is blown and I hope your heart is melting because whenever you have the confidence of your salvation, you never have to fear if God's gonna love you because he has already forgiven you and he has already loved you. Let this helmet of salvation be where the armor of God begins. Finally, Jesus is the sword of the spirit. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of every hope, of every expectation, and every commandment found in Scripture. Jesus is the word of God. All the commands of Scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus. And church, here's what I want you to know. Here's what we want you to see with this sermon series. Our hope for you with this miniseries is not that you would study your Bible for the mere knowledge of the Bible, but we, want, we don't want you to study the Bible so that you can impress God or impress others with your knowledge. We want you to study the Bible so that you may see Jesus, so that you may worship Jesus and be strengthened for the spiritual battle by Jesus. Putting on the armor of God is putting on Jesus. How often have you tried to put on the armor of God and never once considered Jesus? But Paul concludes this section by joining with us in the battle and putting on Christ himself. So our third and final point is, the spiritual, is spiritual boldness and the spiritual battle. Verse 19 and 20 says this, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In order for Paul to boldly proclaim, he even understands. Super Saint Paul, the Apostle Paul, he knows even for him to be bold in his spirit to proclaim the gospel, he must first clothe himself in Jesus. What Paul's saying here is that this is not just a they and them. This is a we and us. This is a me too type of passage. This isn't just for your kids. This is not just a, a kid's ministry passage. This passage is for you right now. Paul even says he needs it himself. So before trying to clothe yourself in the armor of God by going and doing, first pause and worship Jesus as the one who protects you and fights for you. Before you try to go and do, just pause and worship Jesus for who he is. This is reading the scriptures in a Christ-centered way. 
If your reading has not caused you to worship Jesus, then you are not done reading. Also, this is not just some clever way of reading the Bible. This is not new. This actually is a way of reading the Bible that the Bible informs us. What's amazing is that Paul's writing in the first century. But this is language that a thousand years prior to this moment, Isaiah was writing, writing about. In Isaiah 59, I'm just going to read two verses for time's sake. He says this, this is God looking down upon his people. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So church, know that Jesus is the point of every passage that you're reading in Old or New Testament. And it is through Jesus that God protects you, defends you, and fights for you. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. God, we see your goodness and your greatness in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and be enthralled with Jesus. God, help us to not be so easily satisfied with the things of this world. Help us to not be so distracted with things around you, but God, focus our attention on Jesus Open our hearts, soften our hearts to the things of Christ. God, open our eyes to how you protect us and how you fight for us. Open our eyes to how you are with us in Christ. We love you because you first loved us and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.